Welcome, friends, to a particularly apocalyptic episode of The George Sanders Show. Tying in with the Seattle opening of La Ultima Pelicula, we will be discussing that film, as well as Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, Edward F. Klein's film starring and written by W.C. Fields. Uh, we'll also be talking about our Cinema Central movies about movies, and, pick, and Dennis Hopper will be our person of the week. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. How are you on this Monday evening? I am okay. We're, uh, we're a little late. Uh, we had some te- technical difficulties last night, so the this is uh, round two. Yeah, the the podcast was delayed, but but really that's okay because we were uh, even less coherent than normal last night. So <laughs> I was getting over. I had um, some sort of food poisoning that had knocked me out all during the day, and then around seven o'clock we we scheduled recording, and uh, we spent about two hours trying to get. Uh, our computers to work, and it was just horrible. So I think it's I think it's a good thing that we we scrapped it and are starting over. But I say that now. I say that you know yeah. two minutes into the show. I mean you know we, an we, hour from now this could be even worse. We we are full of hope and and certain to be crushed with disappointment. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about Lautaro Pelicula, which is uh, a film you've discussed a couple of times on the show. Um, but finally we get actually dig into it. So here's a clip. I don't think of film as a purely creative act. I don't think of it as a egomaniacal act. I don't think of it as a sexual act. I don't think of it as an act of ego. I don't think of it as an act of hubris. I think of, I think of film as an act of destruction, specifically self-destruction. I, I am I am self-destructing with with the film that we're making here. I think I, I don't know. There's there's a great chance that this is the end, not just of cinema but of, but of me. You know, this is the end of film stock. This is the end of exposing images at 24 frames a second on celluloid. We bought it all. We're shooting it all. Whatever we had left at the end of our shoot, we pointed at the wind, at the grass, at the sun. We shot it all. People are going to look at this and think that I was out of control. I I didn't know what I was doing. I was lost in my own visions and I wasn't conveying anything. But if anyone can truly see what I've committed to film here, they'll see something more spiritual and more mystical than the medium has ever produced so this morning somewhere out there out there on the internet somebody posed what i what i thought was kind of an interesting question it was which movie released in the last five years have you seen the most times which Mm. was a a difficult question for me to answer because i i while i used to watch movies over and over again like especially you know growing up in elementary school and then high school you see like the same things on hbo again and again and again uh, now I'm much older. I have much more, much more options, and not enough. I, I, there are so many things that I want to see. It's it's hard for me to justify rewatching a movie I've already seen when there's like, you know, 80 movies out there that I haven't seen yet that I want to. So sure. uh, I had to like go through the list of of the movies that I've seen from the last five years and and try and think of any that I'd seen multiple times. And there were quite a few that I'd seen twice, but there were only three movies. Uh, released in the last five years that I'd seen three times, and none more than three times. And those movies were uh, uh, Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox, 
uh, Wong Kar Wai's uh, Redux version of Ashes of Time and La Ultima Pellicula, which is kind of an odd choice considering that uh, it hasn't actually been released in the United States yet, but I've seen it three times. I saw it at the Vancouver Film Festival and then I saw it again uh, a couple months ago when I was uh, finalizing my, my top films of 2013 list and uh, reconfirming that it was my favorite film of that year. And then I saw it again just a couple of days ago for this podcast. So I'm, I'm excited for it to, to finally get a, a release. I think uh, this upcoming run at the, the Northwest Film Forum in Seattle is its first proper theatrical release in the United States. Uh, it played a few weeks ago in New York at the, uh, the New Directors New Films film series, which is kind of like a mini film festival at one of the, uh, one of the museum spaces there. I think Film Society. Pants. Yeah. yeah, I think Lincoln Center. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, any New Yorkers out there will know, I'm sure. Uh, anyway, so I, I'm excited to, to see the kind of uh, reaction that, that you and, and people who are now getting a, a chance to see this movie that, that I really loved last year will have. Uh, did you like it? <laughs> I hated it. Oh. <laughs> no. No, I, I did like this movie uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, I I am not as enamored with it as as you are, um, but I don't think that uh, I don't I don't think that anyone is as enamored of it as, as I am. <laughs> not and, even the director. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, maybe we should set up what this movie. I mean, it's going to be it's a little tough to explain this movie, but uh, maybe we should set that up first and then we can, then we can break down the particulars of it. Um. Yeah, it's, it's got a, a very basic plot. A, a film director played by uh, uh, actor and director Alex Ross Perry uh, travels to Mexico on the eve of the Mayan apocalypse and his, his intent is to make the last movie before the end of the world. He's, he's gathered up all of the remaining actual film stock in the world and he's going to use it all up and, and make like the final movie. Uh, and that's basically just kind of the jumping off point for what is more uh, a kind of uh, a dialogue about movies and about art and about, uh, and about culture, about uh, history, about, about how art lasts and, and whether or not that's a good thing and the ways that, that people utilize the art of the past in order to kind of make a mockery of it or make sense of their own lives. And it's a very digressive film. It, it's kind of all over the place. And matching that is a, a multiplicity of kind of film stocks that it uses. It uses all kinds of film form, formats, basically anything you can think of except 35mm film. And the the story goes off on these weird kind of avant-garde digressions. Like in one scene is like a basically a slideshow of one of the characters' parents, and that are actually sl- actual slides of that actor's parents visiting Chechen Itza when they were young and in love. And then there's another scene that's like an imagining of the the asteroid that crashed into the Yucatan and, and killed the dinosaurs. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a very hard film to describe, but it's a really easy film to watch. And, and that's kind of what, what, what makes it so special for me, is I, I hadn't had that much fun in a movie theater in a really long time. Like, it, this movie is hilarious, and I absolutely <laughs> enjoyed 
every minute of watching it. It's it's weird and funny and and beautiful and and thought provoking and it's it's everything that I want in a movie, which is why it was my favorite movie of twenty thirteen. Well, I think that's you know I think going back to it opening um, in Seattle and getting a theatrical release, I think that's a really good thing for this film um, because I think it's it's a good film to see with an audience. And, um, you know, unfortunately I had to watch it on a laptop. Um, cause you know, we, we got a pre-release, ver- you know, pre, uh, screener version or whatever. Um, and so I feel like seeing it in a group of people and, you know, it being about the cinema experience and stuff, I think that would add to that. Um, and so I'm very gratified to see that it's finally actually, you know, getting even a limited run. Um, and I hope it expands to other places and, and, you know, a chance to check this thing out um yeah and, and you're right and 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 that that kind of venue experience is is really hard for me to divorce from my experience of it because it was like the ideal venue to see the movie because it was a, a packed you know film festival audience that was entirely on the wavelength of the film like sure. the whole room was into it and so you know that's one of the reasons I, I really wanted to watch it again by myself to see if it was if I still had the same experience with it and I, I kind of did yeah no I mean you know I I definitely got from it too you know and um I I just wish that I would, had been given that opportunity as well to see it um, amongst other people um and it's you know it's a very you know I don't want to this film or whatever but you know it is a very it, it caters to cinephiles obviously yes <laughs> you know like this isn't a movie that's going to play well um for just some random person buying a ticket trying to get out of the you know um the my, heat for two hours or something my mom would most likely be very perplexed by this film but <laughs> but i think anyone who actually listens to the george sanders show would 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 enjoy it well, we have the smartest listeners on the planet. I mean, that's, that's you know, true. That just us. <laughs> it is a very sophisticated crowd. <laughs> All 15 of them. Uh, so, and, you know, and this film comments on cinema history um, as well. Like, they, um, the film purports to be a documentary of this, you know, expedition of this filmmaker to go down there. And it's, and it's, pretty clear from the get go that it's, it's fake and, and fictionalized, but it, but it, it tries to, yeah, um, play up the documentary aspect of it um, as he goes to scout, you know, um, locations and stuff like that. But then the film is also really indebted to previous films um, and filmmakers where in the beginning there's a scene where the director um, is is discussing what he wants this movie to be and what he sees cinema um, acting as. And he, and he goes on this little rant about how he taught, um, and I'm going to misquote it, I'm sure, but um, he doesn't find the, the scenery um, and, and the stuff that he's doing. He doesn't find it erotic. He doesn't find it. He lists all this litany of things that he doesn't want it to be and what he doesn't feel um, about that stuff. And to me, that seemed a, a real obvious homage to um, Werner Herzog in, in Burden of Dreams, where he's talking about nature and how the you know the the trees are you know <laughs> screaming out in agony or the birds are screaming out in agony or whatever sure um you know that definitely was in the back of my mind and as well as um orson wells who um actually 
that is mentioned by name near the end of the film. But for a good 30 or 40 minutes prior to that, I was thinking a lot about Orson Welles' journey um, to South America um, to film uh, It's All True, um, which is, you know, conveniently, as we talked about um, on the previous show during Magnificent Ambersons, that's what he was doing when the film was taken away from him. And he went on this journey. And the film doesn't talk, L'Ultima Pellicula doesn't bring up It's All True, but it talks about Ambersons and talks about Kane and how he was a misunderstood genius and all of this stuff and ties it all in to this kind of, grand cinematic tradition um yeah that that uh that speech uh where he talks about orson welles magnificent ambersons is actually uh that that section of his monologue is is actually quoted verbatim from uh the american dreamer which was a documentary about dennis hopper made during the editing of his follow-up to easy rider uh the last movie so so hopper in in talking about that is talking about uh, whether or not the last movie will be as successful as Easy Rider. And he's saying, well, you know, look at Orson Welles. He had Magnificent Ambersons, follow-up Citizen Kane. And, you know, maybe this last movie will be, you know, my Ambersons. I'm glad you brought up the Dennis Hopper. Uh, you, you watched that film in preparation, correct, for, for this screening? Yeah, uh, I hadn't. I had, the first two times I saw *Ultima Pellicula*, I hadn't seen the last movie or *American Dreamer*, but I, I did watch them this week, and they're not. Uh, it, it's sometimes described as like a remake of the last movie, and it's not that at all. It's it's kind of loosely inspired by it, and and there's that one scene, and I think there's another scene where where they quote kind of directly from. Uh, from the movie, uh, there's a speech that uh, that Alex. Um, the director gives to his crew uh, when they finish shooting the film uh, where he's like standing there smoking a cigar. And it's actually the same speech that, that Samuel Fuller playing a, a, the movie director in the last movie gives to his crew as he's finishing the shoot. But the, the film is just, it's not just, you know, these two movies, it's just packed with, with cinematic references. Like if you go to the IMDb, IMDb page right now in the trivia section, there's like 54 movie connections listed. And I think they're just like keeping like a running tally of anything that anyone says, because I, I think a, a couple of them are actually from my review of the film. <laughs> I don't, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, cause, oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause I mentioned a uh, uh, dead man. I think that, uh, the relation between between Alex and his his guide, at least in the beginning of the film, uh, very much reminds me of the relationship between uh, William Blake and Nobody in Dead Man, where uh, where Alex is like the the stupid fucking white man who's who's just like being absurd as he wanders around the, this kind of alien country, uh, and uh, and Gabino his his guide. Uh, is, is very dismissive of him. Like there's this opening scene where, where Alex is like filming in like a woods and he finds like a wall and he's like, is, is this a ruin? And Gabino's like, no man, that's just a fence. Right. <laughs> like how old is it? I don't know. 60 years. <laughs> right. And, yeah. Well, what I like about this, you know, what I like about this uh, film is that, um, you know, it, it's totally making fun of this dude. And, uh, you know, it, it, my one of my favorite scenes is is during the, you know, December 21st, you know, as the um, purported apocalypse, you know, Mayan apocalypse is supposed to happen, you know, and they're at the ruins. Um, and there's all these 
stupid fucking white people there um in you know doing these like hippie um you know circle chants and and there's some dude with dreadlocks just like staring off into space and and uh alex is alex you know is is dismissively like making fun of all these people and he's like these people are stupid they don't get it like they're you know they're brought up in this, uh, you know, sheltered world, and they think they're having some sort of spiritual connection by coming down here. And what I like about the film is that it, you know, it, without being overt about it, it's indicting him too, as it's as he's saying that, you know. But without being so heavy-handed about it, but it's like, well, look at you, dude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're doing the same thing. You're just wearing different clothes. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, he's he's uh, he's not quite as bad as those people, but he he's still. You know, the, mo- the, the, the movie's still open to the idea that he's appropriating the culture. Like, I, I think he's. I think the film is is a little more sympathetic to his point of view, but it still recognizes the fact that that he too is an alien. And you know, I, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but but he. Uh, I don't think you can. He he. You know, he does. You know, uh, end up victimized by this culture that he's that he's sought to to exploit. But I, I do think that his intentions. Well, I think I think uh, the New Agers' intentions are good, and I think his intentions are good. And uh, his he's offended at at the shallowness of their appropriation. That they're just like taking bits and pieces of this philosophy without ever really trying to understand it in order to kind of mollify their own you know neurotic needs. Uh, yeah, they don't. They, it's, argue... it's it's a it's a like a lack of respect for the culture. Where where I think that Alex is really trying to get at something, you know, something unique about the experience of of building these these artworks that that the Mayans have left behind and what it means for art to to last thousands of years to the future to be divorced from the context in which it was created. And I, I, I do think that, that, you know, the film is sympathetic to that urge to, to his desire to create something that will stand the test of time. Yeah. But, um, but I think that, you know, I, yeah, I guess he goes on a bit of a journey. Um, but, you know, in those early scenes, he's, you know, like you said, when he's, when he's looking at this, you know, fence, you know, or this gate or whatever, um, and yeah. he's thinking that it's some sort of profound thing, it's like, no, you, you, no. Yeah, it's the, just, the film yeah. tells us right away that, that Alex is, is pretentious and kind of, you know, is not entirely to be taken seriously. So it, it puts us in, in, a, in a more distance relationship to him. We're not, we're not supposed to think that he's brilliant, but I do think that he says some really interesting things and he inspires some really interesting thoughts. So you, what I think the movie is after and, and the way it works for me is not that it like has an argument that it is presenting, but that it kind of captures this, this feeling of, of talking about movies and, and loving movies and trying to come up with ideas about movies and, and art and culture. And it's, it's that experience which is, is really rare. In, in cinema, like uh, you, you, you talked about Orson Welles and, and It's All True and, and the Amberson speech, but the movie that this reminds me most of, of any movie that I've seen is, is F for Fake. Oh, yeah, well, definitely. I mean, in terms of uh, its construction and, and the way and it's and it's musings. Absolutely. I, I, and I and I feel like F for Fake. And we, when we talked about Orson Welles, you know, um, I think I said, you know, F for Fake is a film that's 
was ahead of its time when it came out, you know, 40 years ago. And I, I still think it's ahead of its time. And you're just starting to see the films influenced by F for Fake now in the last five, 10 years or so. And this is clearly within that lineage um, where it's, it's, um, it's very playful with the form. Um, like you said, going between these, um, these styles, it's very digressive. You get scenes where, you know, one of my favorite scenes is, is near the end where Alex and Gabino are sitting around a fire and they're talking about not the movie that he's that his character's trying to make, but the movie that they're in, La Ultima Pelicula, and how they both don't understand what's going on, and they were just kind of following each other's lead, um, and they don't quite understand why this is all happening. But I feel like that's, you know, the the way that it peels the layers back on this film and kind of um, falls back in on itself is very interesting and, and very much um, akin to something like F for Fake. Yeah, and I I uh I haven't seen anything by by the directors of this movie. I don't think we even mentioned them yet. Uh but it it was co-directed by by Raya Martin, who's a a Filipino filmmaker and and Mark Perenson, who has made a film previously, but it is best known as the the editor of Cinemascope magazine and he's a film critic and he's worked at various film festivals like Vancouver and uh Toronto, I think. I'm not sure. Uh but there, there's also, you know, a lot of input from, I think, uh, uh, Perry and, uh, and Gabino Rodriguez both have, have credits as, uh, as writers of the film. Um, I don't know how much of it was improvised. I think probably less than you would think from just watching it. But, but you know, it, it, it does have the feeling of a, a group of friends who kind of went off to Mexico for a week and made a movie. See, that's interesting because, uh, yeah, because I feel... When I was watching it, um, I feel like it's really like it's studiously messy. Like I feel like yeah, you know, you can kind of it's it's all over the place. Like if you just if you just kind of try and track it as it goes. But I feel like yeah, when I was from my perspective, it felt very thought out um, in terms of what it wanted to be and where it wanted to go and what it wanted to say. I mean, maybe like editing and stuff, but I, it was it was a little more freeform. But I feel like the the progression that they were trying to make and and the the layers that they were trying to add to it, I feel like were very deliberate. Yeah, I think you know it's it's like uh, it's like deliberately complicated, if that makes sense. Like like when I, when I think of like a deliberate film, I think about something like uh, like Drug War that like pairs out anything that's that's not essential and it just goes from from a to b to c and it you know takes you straight along the line to where it wants wants to be where whereas this movie you know takes you from a to z to to f to to q and it knows exactly what all of those are but it doesn't follow you know a a predictable path well that's actually one of the i'm glad you you bring that up because um I think one of my favorite things about this movie, and it does it a couple of times, but the 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 one that really sticks in my mind is um, you mentioned the slides of uh, Gabino's parents, and he mentions those pictures. I think it's like twenty minutes earlier in the film. He yeah. he he mentions it as a, like an aside, um, and it's just a casual thing, and it doesn't really you know it's just kind of a flippant thing that he mentions, um, and then it kind of goes away. And the movie goes and does its stuff. And then out of the blue, 
bam, they drop in these slides. Um, and it, and it's really, um, it's a really invigorating and refreshing thing when it happens where you're like, Oh, you know, that was, that was put there on purpose. And, and, um, it actually built to something. And, uh, I think that's really cool. And this movie does that, um, uh, time and again, you know, one of, another thing that I really like is that the, um, the title card, uh, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't come in until like 20 minutes into this film. Um, it's like the departed or something where there's this kind of like prologue, um, and the movie's just kind of rolling along and he kind of says his piece about what he wants the movie to be and all these things and da, da, da. And you kind of get into a rhythm of it and then all of a sudden, boom, the Ultima Pellicula comes on screen and you're like, oh wait, now the movie has started or something like that? So, um, Yeah, and I think yeah. it, it kind of it kind of uh, builds the, the meta-ness, if you will, uh, of the film as it, it, it starts out as in a... Uh, a fairly normal kind of documentary mode. There's a, there's like the opening shot of the, the, the Mayan all in costume and you're just kind of staring at him for a while. And then he, he like breaks character. That uh, shot is awesome. By yeah. The way. And then uh, you see like a, a shot of Alex, you know, staring into a camera. Uh, and then, you know, it, it, it goes to, to Alex talking about the movie he wants to make. And then his first meetings with, uh, with Gabino and as as the film goes along, uh, this kind of artifice of the the documentary form begins to break down. We, we begin to uh, see shots repeat themselves from slightly different angles or like multiple takes of the same action. Uh, you'll see like boom mics come into the screen. You'll see uh, you know a scene will end, and then the actors will will walk off of off of the set, and you'll see like a sound guy walk by, and like Gabino goes off to the hallway and like lights a cigarette, um, and this it becomes more and more chaotic as the film goes along, as as like the the whole kind of apparatus of making a film becomes exposed, and at the same time, uh, you know Alex's monologues become increasingly abstract to where at the end he's explaining the kind of movie that he wants to make is one where you will see like all of the different takes of the same action because that that is valuable because what he, what he wants to show in his film is not just the, the, the artwork that he's created, but also the process of creating an artwork. And it's, it's something that he mentioned way back when in, in, uh, talking about the hippies at, at Chechen Itza, he says that these people have no conception of what it was, what it was like to look at this empty field and want to build a pyramid and to have that kind of uh, desire and work ethic and, and ability to, to actually create something out of nothing. And that's what he wants his movie to show. And at the same time, the movie that we're watching is showing that. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. He talks about the the you know coming to that fork in the road and go and going both ways at once and showing yeah um, and and what I like um, about that style and and like you said it, it is it is deliberately like teased out where the first time you see them repeat a shot um, you kind of you kind of think to yourself wait did wait is that the same why is is that repeating, uh, you know, but then, uh, and then later you, instead of getting two takes in a row, you get four, five, six, seven, eight or whatever. And it keeps, it keeps building up. Yeah. Um, and it, it, uh, it, it subverts this documentariness in really subtle ways in the beginning of the film. Like it'll, uh, 
it'll separate the sound from the image. Like you'll be hearing the sound like it's like it's happening right in like the middle of the screen, but the actors that are talking will be like you know two hundred yards away, and you can barely make them out in a crowd. That's and, what I was just about to say. Is is uh, there are a couple of times in this movie where um, they'll sh- it, it's a really cool thing they do is it's a it's a it's a um, it's a wide shot of a building or something like that. And you won't even see them in the frame, and you're just and you think it's like a voiceover or something of them describing this this church or something like that, and it, the the camera will just sit showing that that church, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, here they are with someone with a boom mic right behind them, you know, as they walk into the frame, um, out of you know the from a little speck into into the middle of the frame, which is really cool. Yeah, the the one I really think is neat is uh, when when Alex is, is first in, in jail, he like, uh, there's like a scene missing when he, you know, he goes into a bar and then there's like a scene missing title card, which, uh, is like, if you've seen Grindhouse, they do the same thing, but it's actually from, uh, the last movie does that as well. Uh, and then, and then he wakes up in jail and in a, in a, if it was a documentary, the, the camera would be outside the jail cell, but it's not, it's inside the jail with him. So you right. know that it's not a documentary. Like, it is a state. He's not really in jail. This is something that they've staged. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's, 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 like, like you said, the progression of, of pulling back the curtain and showing you the, the strings or whatever um, is really well done. Um, it, it, just the way that they tease all of that stuff out. Um, there's, a, there's a conversation that Alex and Gabino have inside a museum um, and this is kind of like the central conceit of the film where he's talking about how he doesn't think film will ever have the lasting impact that, um, you know, these, these uh, you know, structures that the Mayans built um, will have. You know, he, he doesn't think film will, you know, any film will last thousands of years into the future. And his argument is because unlike a, unlike a structure, um, which is can be consumed, you know, can be, um, observed, you know, dispassionately or, or, you know, without imbuing some sense of the creator into it or whatever. Um, films are so personal, um, and they're such personal expressions of, of the, of the filmmakers, um, that he feels like there's a, a disconnect that will stop them from being, uh, enjoyed or respected, um, you know, centuries, um, or, millennia. Under- or understood. Or understood, even yeah. Um, do you agree with him? <laughs> is my question to you. I it's do. It's a really interesting. It's a really interesting, uh, you know, conversation that he brings up. Yeah, I do, and I think it, I think it's really interesting that that he says that that he that he knows that that movies that the movies that movie that he made. I think it's really interesting that he he seems to know that the movie that he is making has no chance at surviving, yet he wants to do it anyway. Well, yeah, it's funny because he's he's kind of at odds with himself because he's he's so obsessed with with creating you know the the final film uh, and and earlier in the film he talks about how that's going to be the marker you know that's that's the end point for this this time period will be this film that he's going to make which implies that he thinks that it's going to have some sort of lasting significance um when in you know a couple scenes later or whatever he's he's arguing um kind of to the contrary that uh it it won't stand up 
you know, compared to, you know, these buildings or these, these, um, structures. Um, yeah, I think well, it's I think, interesting though. I think, I think that that contradictory Im impulse is, uh, is at the heart of, of, um, I think that that contradiction is at, at the heart of the the impulse to just create art in the first place is that you know you 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 know that it it won't last and that it won't make as much it will never make as much sense to another person as it makes to you but you you still feel the need to make it anyway Sure Well it's funny because you know um What's so great about cinema, and you know, it, cinema is an art form that is is so, and it's still in its infancy. Um, but what's so great about film, in in you know, he's talking about like millennia or whatever. Um, but it's so great to be able to hunker down with a film in 2014, um, that a film that was made a hundred years ago, and and get some sort of perspective on culture and time um that are that are long gone and um i i wonder if i agree with him in terms of like not being able to connect with something the further and further away you are from it because i get a, a huge joy out of that with with cinema and that's one of the main things i i get out of it is is being able to um inhabit a different time place and you know a different uh time place is that that's not a word <laughs> a different time and place yeah well uh, i mean we we can read literature from from 3000 years ago and still relate to it in some way because you know while it doesn't uh you know like the odyssey is is an expression of an author possibly or or several authors um yet the you know there's still still something you know fundamentally human about it and maybe it doesn't have we don't really understand like the the personality of the sole author of that because he is so alien to us but there's some common humanity to it all yeah but i don't i don't i don't know that that's the same thing as as you know as the way that we experience it now like if if uh Does that make sense? Like, like yeah, there, there are aspects of, of the work at art, of art that will survive through the, through the centuries, but the totality of it will never be the same. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I mean, but you know, you could even, but you could argue that the, um, you know, the, the perception, yeah, I guess, I mean, the perception of these buildings is different too. Right, and that's that's one of the things they talk about when they're in the museum is is like the the jewelry that that survives from you know you know six hundred years ago or uh, or whenever was you know like the the cheap throwaway Two yeah. yeah plastic jewelry of of the the Mayan civilization, but it just happens to be what survives, and I think right. that uh, his line about that is like like garbage lasts forever, but the memory is fragile. Yeah. No, it's funny because, you know, I saw an ad in the New Yorker, you know, you know, uh, Christie's or Sotheby's or one of those places, you know, they're selling uh, some, it was like a practical guide for sailors or something that was made like, you know, a, a couple centuries ago or something. And, you know, and you know, when it was made, it was a practical thing, but now it's, you know, being auctioned off for like $6,000 or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so the context changes. Um, 
Yeah, and I think I think it's important to note that that while you know, uh, you know, it's called La Ultima Pelicula, which means you know the the last movie or the final movie or something like that, and and he talks about it being the last movie. He talks about using up all of the the film. Uh, it's not a movie that sees like the end of film as a medium as the end of cinema. And I think I think that's that's important to note that it, it uses eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter film, but it also uses a variety of digital formats as well. And it's because you know, as they say a couple of times in the film, like this this kind of apocalypse, this end of film, isn't a linear end. It's a a, 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 it's, a it's a circular thing, a cyclical thing. Whereas uh, cinema ends and then is replaced by another kind of cinema and it, it all just keeps going on like the the mayan apocalypse wasn't the end of the world it was the end of one world and the beginning of another right and i feel like the the structure and the the, the construction of this movie is you know pointing towards or it's trying to you know be that new beast because i mean like you said um, and going back to F for Fake, this is kind of a new way of doing things, you know? I mean, this movie is, um, it, it's, it's, it's non-linear, it's kind of hard to get a bead on it, it's very meta, um, postmodern, if you want to use that term. Um, well, just and, and it, formally speaking, it's, it's a celebration of, of film formats in all of like their, their imperfections and, and the kind of beautiful things about them. Like their, their 16 millimeter film with like hairs and is stuck in the, in the frame and, and scratches and, you know, these really, you know, intense and, and fuzzy colors that you get with, with like eight millimeter and 16 millimeter film and all kinds of film grain. But there's also like, you know, super sharp digital images and, you see images from like GoPro cameras that wouldn't be possible with a 35 millimeter camera. Like there's underwater shots that are crystal clear. And there's, sure. there's one shot where uh, I think it's, it's Perenson is walking around Chechen Itza and he, he takes the camera and he just turns it upside down and just walks along with the, you know, the whole world upside down. And then he just turns it over in his hand and the world spins, which is something you can do with like a really light handheld GoPro camera that you couldn't do with like this big bulky, you know, 35 millimeter machine. Yeah, so well, it's, it's, a, it's a, and that's a fantastic shot too. Um, it, it, right when the the um, the you know towering uh, building comes into view, the whole thing yeah flips over, and it's 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 really weird how <laughs> how affecting that shot is. Um, yeah, it and completely throws your equilibrium off. Yeah, and I I really love the 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 special effects shot, which is of the. Uh, the, the meteor that, that killed the dinosaurs uh, crashing into the ocean and they do it with like a like a rear screen uh, yeah. uh, projection and they have uh, uh, in in the foreground is is a beach at night and and first it, it's Raya Martin standing there looking at the beach and you see like the the asteroid crashing and like you know fire shooting off everywhere and then uh, Martin walks off and then Mark Parenson walks up and so it's like the two directors watching the end of the world and it's it's just, it's really, it's a really beautiful practical effect that you, you don't see anymore. And, you know, there were, uh, I actually asked parents in this at, at the, the Q&A in Vancouver, and uh, there are no digital effects in, in the film at all. It, it was all what was right there. It's not like a, a, a 
artificially distressed film like like you saw in Grindhouse where they're right. like adding scratches and stuff like that like it, it's the the tangible qualities of the film stock that they used are out there for all of their their pluses and minuses mm-hmm. yeah it's it's interesting because that's one one area where this film is being totally honest you know what i mean like like that grindhouse style where you know robert rodriguez digitally adds scratches to something to to give it a false sense of uh age or whatever um which is a very it's it's interesting that that this film is is very um honest and real when it comes to those kinds of things but then it's so willing to play with the conceptions of what is reality and what is not um, in terms of how the story is going, what, what we're actually watching at the moment that we're watching it. Um, Yeah. I don't don't think it, I don't think it ever like misleads you. I think it just constantly throws you off your guard. Yeah. It's constantly zigging and zagging, um, which is really exhilarating kind of stuff. So, yeah. Well, uh, if you are in Seattle, La Ultima Pelicula opens at the Northwest Film Forum on Capitol Hill uh, this Friday. Uh, what day is that? The 26th or something? April 25th. I think it runs from 25th. the 25th through the 30th. Yeah, so if you get a chance, you know, check it out. Um, if, you, if you see it and you like it or you don't like it, uh, let us know. <laughs> um, and then hope, listen- hopefully it'll, it'll you know, continue to, to keep moving around the country and... and- and play some more places so more people have a chance to see it. Well, clearly it's going to get the George Sanders bump now. So, well, you know, yeah. it, it should be opening at your local AMC by, you know, June, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> Most likely. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're listening to some Yola Tango today. So this is a Deeper Into Movies. Welcome back to the show. Uh, it's time to get to a couple of news items this week. Um, the first thing is um, 
about five, six days ago, Timeout um, issued the top 100 uh, animated films of all time. They, you know, asked filmmakers and critics and a whole bunch of people um, to list their favorite films, and then they ranked them all. And uh, the list is out. We'll link to it in the in the show uh, notes. And uh, yeah, I mean, looking over the list, I you know, I don't really have anything amazing to say about it um i feel like it's it's pretty solid and i i you know i can quibble about you know placement of things i guess but and and i don't think there are any like crazy omissions um you know personally if i was to throw my hat in the ring on this um you know there are some disney movies i might slot in over other ones like i'm a big fan of lilo and stitch and that's not on here whereas something like um I don't know. I think it's better than Little Mermaid or Cinderella. Cinderella. Um, but yeah. you know, I, you know. So I was surprised to see Cinderella up as high as it was. Um, you know, it beat out uh, Sleeping Beauty, which was kind of uh, surprising. Um, but and it's weird to see something like Frozen on there so quickly because I, I don't know if that movie is going to age that well. Because the, the I, I Lego, was, the Lego Movie was on there. Yeah, and pretty high up too. Yeah, it was, it was in the like top in 50. the yeah, it was like in the forties. Uh, yeah, so. What do you think about the list there, Sean? There wasn't really anything that was omitted that I could think of. Uh, I had a lot of quibbles with, with placement, though. Yeah, which, but I mean, that's kind of the nature of the beast yeah. when you've got, you know, all these different kind of disparate people throwing their, you know, thing in the ring. Um, what 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 would be the most egregious thing for you? Uh, the... Uh, Well, let's see. Let's just go through the top ten. Uh, we had what Spirited Away was number two, I think. Yeah. Well, Pinocchio at number one. Pino- Pinocchio is a great movie. <laughs> it's not. It's not the best animated movie of all time. It's, I could. It's fantastic, but it's not. I, I, w- I could see. I could see Fantasia. I could see Snow White. I could even see Bambi more than than Pinocchio. I could make an argument for Pinocchio. I have my main issue with Pinocchio is the blue fairy um, deus ex machina that kind of keeps happening in the film, um, which kind of takes me out of it where she, and I think I've talked about this before, where she tells Pinocchio and again, like, I will never, I won't help you anymore after this one time. And then she helps him again. And I'm like, but Pinocchio, to me, I think Pinocchio it can is really awesome in terms of it's Walt Disney being like showing off all the tools in his toolbox and going for broke with it. I mean, it's got the greatest um, multi-plane camera shot ever made. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. The water effects in it are have topped. Um, so I can make the argument. I mean, you know, I watched every Disney movie you know, two years ago and Snow White to me, to me is, is the, is the pinnacle, but Pinocchio is really freaking good. <laughs> Pinocchio is really good. And, and then it's got, it's got two Miyazaki's at, at two and three, uh, Spirited Away. I just, I don't think Spirited Away is as good as, as some of the other Miyazaki movies that I think Totoro, which, which they have at number three is better. I also think, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service is a better movie. And I think at least two of, Isao Takahata's films are better, but not the one that places highest on the list, which is uh, uh, Grave of the Fireflies. Fireflies. Yeah, Uh, but I think this comes down to, once again, 
what people have seen. Yeah, and Spirited Away is like the the most popular of the the uh, Ghibli films. Yeah, that and Totoro. I mean, yeah. those are two, you know, and like something like Only Yesterday, which is not available in the States, right. you know, which I was I was happy to see it make the list because um, I thought it wouldn't. But, you know, it's down there at number 61. And I think if more people have, you know, had a chance to see it, they would probably rate it higher. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so similarly with with Whisper of the Heart. Which, right. which is my favorite of the Ghibli films. But the one that really stands out in the top 10, at least, as, as a, a mistake, and maybe, you know, I haven't, I haven't rewatched this yet. I have the Blu-ray, but uh, it's, it's Dumbo. Ahead of Snow, oh, no. Ahead of Snow White. <laughs> Dumbo at number six. Just... Dumbo is amazing. Yeah. It is it is incredible and in i mean it's i i think it's absolutely amazing um it's it's really interesting because it you know in terms of like it came after huge you know these huge flops you know pinocchio was a huge flop fantasia was a financial disaster cuz you know disney bet the farm on it and you know he went over budget and it was just no good and so they turned around and made this cheap um, slapdash, you know, really quick thing that is just heartbreaking, beautiful, and just absolutely incredible. I think Dumbo totally deserves a spot in the top ten. I thought you were going to say Nightmare Before Christmas uh, was the the shocking. No, one, no, but, that's uh, fine. And and Fantastic Mr. Fox. I know, I know, you're not a Wes Anderson guy, but but it's it's a really great movie. <laughs> I, I need you have to bring you have to bring it up every week on the show. I, I need uh, I need to see Dumbo again, but just in in my memory of it, again. I haven't seen it probably in in twenty years at least. But it it doesn't rank with with the other of those like first five or six Disney features for me. It's really good. I mean, in my list that I did. Um, when I ranked all 52 theatrically released, I know there's 53 now with frozen. Um, yeah. Dumbo it's up there. It's really, it's really high up there. And, um, and, and I might change my mind when I watch it because you know, I had, I had very mediocre memories of Bambi and then I watched that again a couple of years ago when, when I got the Blu-ray and Bambi is amazing. It, Bambi it is, is insane. It is an it? even more experimental film than Fantasia. Like it is, yeah is one of the most interesting films of the 1940s animated or, or otherwise it's, it's, uh, it's really special. So it's really, it's really audacious. It's incredibly, it's incredibly special. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, give it, give it another go. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah. Uh, the, the only, the only other thing would, uh, would be that, uh, I wish they had included shorts. Yeah. I mean, I can see why they didn't. Um, it seemed like it would get bogged down. Um, yeah, but so so many of of the best animated films of of the twentieth century and and of this century as well are are shorts. And you know oh, they absolutely. have like the the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie that includes like a bunch of the best uh, Looney Tunes shorts, like like What's Up or Doc. But you know there's no room for the uh, the Chuck Jones, the Dot in the Line, or um, you know some of the the silly symphonies that are really great. Or, oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, skeleton dance or something like that would totally. Yeah, I I I, uh, I agree with you on that. Um, I was gratified to see a film that you and I both champion. Uh, Cedar sings the blues. Yeah. Um, 
was was included and it's you know it's right there in the middle it's it's fighting its way you know it's it's smack dab at number 51 so that was cool to see you know it's funny to look at a list like this and see how dominated it is by three studios you know disney pixar and uh, ghibli you know <laughs> i mean you know if you take out those studios you've probably got maybe i don't know 20 films left on this list here um Oh yeah, and that that would be my other quibble is is their top two Pixar movies. They're both in the top ten are are The Incredibles and then Toy Story, which uh, would not be my top two Pixar films. Me neither. Uh, I think The Incredibles is uh, Brad Bird's weakest uh, animated film. It's you know Iron Giant's right behind it. You know, nipping at its heels. Um, well, l- l- let me put it this way: even even my two and a half year old daughter knows that Toy Story Two is better than Toy Story. She refuses to watch the first one and will only watch the second one, and has you watched know, I, it every day for the last two weeks. So I used to I used to be of that opinion. Um, I, I for a long time um, until um, rewatching both of them before Toy Story Three came out and and realizing what an achievement uh, the first Toy Story is. Um, it's it's shockingly good, but but I agree. I mean, Ratatouille is my favorite Pixar movie um, by a mile. So um, yeah, and you know, and Wally is my favorite by by an equal mile, a, a, a kilometer. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> All right, yeah, we should. So, uh, so is that list? You know, it's it's fun to argue about lists from time to time. It, um, it's definitely other... you know all all of the movies on there that I have seen are you know should be seen. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a great list of animated films and that's all you what you want from a film like the the actual rankings aren't really all that important you just want 100 great animated movies so yeah absolutely and that provides that um uh, yes uh the second piece of news this week is that uh the Cannes Film Festival has announced its lineup um you know uh movies are coming out <laughs> that we will probably not see for you know 12 to 16 months or so but uh did you get a chance to look at the schedule for for can sean do you have any thoughts on that uh yeah i was uh i was a little disappointed yeah it's kind of boring it really is it's it's got a lot of old european dudes yeah and that's uh, and that's fine i like some of those old european dudes like there's a new jean-luc Godard film that's always great uh there's a uh, uh, there's Dave Cronenberg. He's he's not a European dude. He's a Canadian dude. Uh, there's uh, Nuri Bilga Ceylon's new movie. He's kind of European, depending on your opinion of Turkey. Uh, Olivier <laughs> Olivier Assayas has a new movie. But those are pretty much it. I guess the Dardens, which uh, I've only seen one of their films. It, it was fine. I'm not a a Darden guy. Yeah. A- Adam Magoyan is apparently still making films. I don't know anyone that has seen any of his movies from the last 15 years, but apparently he still gets into Cannes. Uh, there, there was no, you know, there are no Chinese directors in competition this year, which I guess, I guess uh, nobody made a movie in the Chinese language this year. Yeah, they, I think they took the year off. That's yeah, that, that's, a, that's a real shame. There is one in uh, Out of Competition, uh, uh, Jang Yimou made a film, and apparently Can are the only people in the world that still care that Jang Yimou makes films, so that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
You're so snide. Uh, yeah, you know, there you go. So, you know, I... The, the one that I was really hoping for was, was Ho Xiao Xian's has been working on, on a Wuxia film for several years now. It's been like six years, I think, since, since Flight of the Red Balloon came out. And, and he's, this, this movie he's making, The, the Assassin, has been rumored for a really long time. And it's, it was uh, a, a possibility for, for Cannes. And, and then so to, to not see it on the list is just really disappointing. You know, I... I I, I fear it'll be like another year without a Ho Shao Shen film, and, and that makes me very sad. Yeah, I understand. I feel your pain. Yeah. Uh, did it, did any of the uh, the movies uh, excite you? Are you looking forward nope. to any of these? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Not a one. Nope. nope. <laughs> I couldn't care less. I mean, I, you know, I, like I said, the things will trickle out when they do. You know, I'm not one of those people that you know, breath, breathlessly awaits, you know, the announcements of these things, unless there's something like, I don't know, sometimes there's a surprise that jumps in there and you're like, oh, I didn't know so-and-so, you know, has a new movie or something. And that kind of gets you excited, even though, like I said, you're not going to see it for another year or so. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, sustain that kind of excitement when those things happen. So, yeah, you know, I don't know. Like plain- Can is generally like a bellwether of what the year in cinema is going to be like and you know 2012 was was a fantastic year i think 2012 is one of the the greatest years in film history like you you stack it up against you know 1967 1939 you know 2012 will be up there and and 2013 was pretty good uh wasn't great it it was fine and and if if this can lineup is is the best of what we we have to look forward to i'm i am nervous about what 2014 is going to end up being. Yeah. Well, the good thing, you know, for us is that, you know, some of the 2013 films are just starting to here. So we're still getting, you know, uh, like only lovers left alive is coming around, you know, uh, in the next week or two and uh, under the skin and stuff like that. So, um, you know, we're playing catch up. And so that, you know, it's good to play catch up when the previous year was great. So, you know, we can complain in 2015 about <laughs> about all that. So, uh, yeah, there's a there's a couple minor news items. the uh, The Hong Kong Film Awards uh, were announced last weekend, and and basically the Grandmaster won everything, which it should have. Uh, uh, <laughs> I th- I think it actually set a record for like the most wins. I, the only category I think that it lost an award in was was Best Actor. Uh, Nick Chung won for a uh, an MMA action type movie, and apparently he's really good in that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, uh, election the election movies. I think Nick Chung is, is memorable in that. Yeah, and and speaking of Johnny Toe, it's uh, it's his birthday this week. He turns oh, happy birthday, uh, Johnny Toe. Happy birthday, Johnny Toe. I think I believe he turns fifty nine on the twenty sixth, which is just a few days from now. Yeah. Maybe I'll finally watch the Blu-ray of Mad Detective that you loaned me. You really should. <laughs> Maybe it's not the twenty-sixth. Let me let me see. Twenty-second. Uh, it's tomorrow. We're recording this on the twenty-first, so tomorrow is is Johnny Toe's birthday. On the twenty-sixth is the sixtieth anniversary of the release of Seven Samurai, the the greatest film of all time. So, if you don't know what movie to watch on on April twenty-sixth, you should watch Seven Samurai. You really should. Yeah. 
uh, I think that's it for the news. We 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 had you know so many uh, kind of uh, obnoxious blog posts to complain about on our last episode that we we <laughs> we neglected to find out what what Mike's watching. So we're gonna we're gonna ask that question this week, Mike. What you watching? Uh, what I'm watching. Uh, I've been watching a lot of. Not a lot, but I, I've watched a few uh, contemporary kind of dumb comedies lately. Uh, one one that was uh, surprisingly awesome and one that was uh, pretty much as bad as I expected it to be. Um, I, I got around to watching Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, um, and I wasn't a big fan of the first one. Um, so I'm not quite sure why I watched the second one. Um, I was surprised to find myself really enjoying the first maybe hour of that thing, um, when it's just really goofy and stuff. But then the thing turns on a dime halfway through and just completely falls apart. And, uh, I swear it was nary a joke landed in that last hour, um, which made for quite a tedious viewing because the film is, is a solid two hours long, <laughs> um, which it has no, no right to be. Um, so, you know, I still contend that Will Ferrell is a, is a hilarious man. And I think he's, he's really great. Um, I just tend to not care for the movies that he's in, <laughs> um, cause they tend to be a little bloated and, uh, he's, I, I feel like he's better than the material, even though he is so intimately involved in the material you know co co-writer and producer and all that stuff so i don't know i don't know if he should get off the hook for that stuff but i also watched uh, a film that was originally planned to be a will Fer- will ferrell film uh that was passed on to andy samberg and the lonely island guys um and that movie was hot rod from 2007 and man hot rod that movie's awesome. <laughs> have you seen Hot Rod? I have, and I, I greatly enjoyed it. <laughs> it's a really fun film. And, and uh, you know, it was kind of a spontaneous viewing, you know, last minute looking for something to watch. And, uh, man, I was pleasantly surprised with that thing. Um, I really like how it's, it, it's really willing to do just about anything um, <laughs> to get a laugh. And, uh, that works wonders for me. You know, they're willing to play with the form of the film and, and have it, you know, uh, get all messed up and, and they're, they're willing to push the Simpsons, uh, you know, rake philosophy to its, you know, extreme. There's a scene where Andy Samberg falls down a mountain and it goes on for like five minutes. He just tumbles and it's absolutely hilarious. So, is, if you is, haven't seen Hot Rod, is uh, is there a, a, a like a training montage in that that's uh, like a ripoff of Footloose? Yeah, like an homage to Footloose. It's been years since I saw it, so I was actually really surprised that you that you watched it because I I feel like nobody nobody else saw that movie. Yeah, I, that's how I feel too. Um, and. What's another great thing about it? One, one, the cast is pretty much across the board fantastic. Um, you've got Ian McShane uh, from Deadwood playing the, the stepfather to Andy Samberg, and he's just fantastic in it. Um, and uh, but the the other great thing about it is the soundtrack is all like '80s pop metal and like like Europe 
and uh, <laughs> like a lot, there's a lot of Europe in there and uh, they really just run with it. And yeah, it's, it's a great film that I feel like I will revisit on, you know, a sick day, you know, a year or two from now and still get a lot out of it. Cause it, it, it is, uh, it's really solid. So if you haven't seen hot rod, I say, check it out. Gosh, darn it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So turning from hot rod, um, let's talk about Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're so, motorcycles, you know, I'm trying to tie it into him somehow. Well, uh, well, Dennis, Dennis Hopper, of course, directed the last movie and he is the subject of, of the American dreamer, uh, both of which served as inspirations for Ultima Pellicula. So we figure we might as well pick him as our, our person of the week. Uh, but then, you know, you, you didn't watch either of those movies and then you admitted the the unthinkable which is that you've never seen apocalypse <laughs> now which uh, it's true i just i'm i'm just i'm flabbergasted i i'm speechless i i don't understand how how you have not seen apocalypse now well it's one of those movies that you know you feel like you've seen through osmosis just b- based on its you know it's it's influence on the culture around it and um you know it's one that i want to i want to see it's just it's i'm never quite compelled to get to it because i i feel like i know parts of it so well already ride of the valkyries and you know all these things napalm in the morning and stuff and it's just like um you know i i tend to search out things that are fresh and totally exciting well, not always, I guess. I just rewatched Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, <laughs> which, by the way, five star movie all the way. But anyway, um, well, yeah, I I, well, I I can understand that. Like, uh, I just I just saw They Live for the first time a, a few weeks ago, the the John Carpenter yeah. movie, which I don't understand how I, I went so long in my life without having watched it because you know it, it feels like it's been there forever, and right. like I've known it forever. But then watching it, it was it met my expectations and was so much better than what I thought it would be. And I I feel that that would be your experience with Apocalypse Now. Because you you think you know it, but I guarantee you don't know it. (laughs) Um, Well, you know what we should do? I mean, I can't remember now what the films were, but there was an episode, um, maybe five, ten episodes back, where I discovered you hadn't seen, there were like three movies that, so shockingly you had never seen i don't remember what they were but maybe we should do a show where um we we both pick a film that you know is one is part of the you know cultural canon that you know the other that one person hasn't seen and maybe play catch up with that and apocalypse now can be one film and then you know whatever the hell you didn't see um sure bring it could be added to the mix all right <laughs> we just gotta figure out what those movies were yeah try if anybody try. listens to this show Try and find a movie and I find haven't seen. <laughs> no, it was something really weird. It was like, I was really surprised you'd never seen it. I, I, I can't remember. If anybody knows, uh, bug Sean on Twitter and tell him what movie it was he hadn't seen. Because I, I don't remember. I barely remember what I watched yesterday. So there you go. But anyway, Dennis Hopper. Uh, you know, d- I've, I've just... seen a lot of his stuff, you know. Um, I, you know, as an actor, you know, I've seen him in, um, you know, True Romance and, of course, Speed, uh, one of the greatest films of the 90s. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, but I, I do feel like I'm at a loss here because um, 
particularly those films that are, were an influence on La Ultima Pelicula are films that he had a larger hand in shaping than just being appearing as an actor, you know, um, in them. So I feel like I can't speak as much to, to him as a creative force um, than you can, for example, having seen those films. Well, it's actually, it's actually kind of interesting. Like watching The American Dreamer, he, you know, this is supposedly a documentary about, about him as he's editing these films. And he'll, you know, at this point in his life, he's kind of descending into, you know, like a drug and alcohol fueled lunacy. And yeah. which is, which is a very famous story. Like he, he, you know, just went off the rails for most of the 1970s. And then he made this, this, you know, amazing comeback as he sobered up in the 1980s and, you know, just kept working and working and working. He would basically be in, in anything. And he, you know, he gave some really remarkable supporting performances in a bunch of movies. Like in 1986, just looking at his IMDb page, um, he was in, I think, five motion pictures and a TV movie in 1986. Six motion pictures and a TV movie. And and some of them are amazing. He's in uh, Hoosiers, Blue Velvet, The River's Edge, Straight to Hell. But then he's also, you know, in Texas Chainsaw 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> 2. Uh, he's in the TV movie Stark, Mirror Image. And in something called The American Way, a.k.a. Riders of the Storm where he plays the captain. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. But that's but that's like a that's like a like a studio era supporting actor performance. That's like Thomas Mitchell in 1939 appearing in in Stagecoach uh uh Gone with the Wind and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That that is like the quality of Hopper's performances in, right. in Hoosier's Blue Velvet and River's Edge. And you know, to, you know, he, so it's kind of like this heroic story of this, this actor who, uh, at the beginning of his career, he was like the, like he was the poor man's James Dean. Like he was the guy who didn't get James Dean's parts and ended up with like the bit part in Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. And he kind of kicked around on TV for a while. He would be like a, a supporting character in some mediocre John Wayne Westerns. And then he gets together with uh, with Jack Nicholson, who had similarly been kicking around Hollywood for years without much success, and and Henry Fonda's son, and they go make this movie uh, called Easy Rider, which becomes a massive hit. And so after you know fifteen years of wandering around Hollywood with no success at all, he suddenly becomes like the you know the the standard bearer for his generation, and he gets all of this money from Universal to go make the last movie. And he he finishes the movie on time and, and reasonably under budget, but then takes years to edit it and just right. drives Universal nuts. And then when it does come out, it's this crazy kind of avant-garde uh, movie about movies that doesn't make a whole lot of narrative sense, but it's it occupies this weird space between a, a, a movie... And a movie about the movie that it's about, and it's really trippy and it's really cool. Uh, I yeah. I recommend it highly. It's it's available. You can find it on on YouTube in a, a, a pretty poor copy. I don't know that it's ever been on on video. I'm pretty sure Universal just buried it. But yeah. it, it's it's one of those movies that is is blamed for killing the new Hollywood. And it it seems to me like the more of these movies that I see. It seems to me that the movies that that killed the new Hollywood are better than the movies that are held up as like the the greatest hits of the new Hollywood. 
Because I, I would much prefer the last movie to Network or Heaven's Gate <laughs> or Heaven's Gate to The Deer Hunter or New York, New York to to you know, Shampoo or, or Nashville or something like that. Right. So I, I, I think that there's like this kind of critical reevaluation as time has gone on, as, as we become a little more distant from the 1970s, that these, these movies that were considered flops at the time, like uh, Sorcerer, um, William Friedkin's film, uh, are getting reevaluated as they're seen outside of like the the gossip, like the the studio narratives of the time, and seen for the kind of really daring and interesting films that they are. Oh sure, I mean yeah, and I mean look at you know Heaven's Gate. Had, you know what what was that last year, the year before? You know Criterion released that really handsome set of it and stuff, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it, it, and. You know, I mean, this is a decade later, but you know, Ishtar's rehabilitation is underway. So, oh yeah, Ishtar uh, is definitely definitely a part of that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I would really like to see that film. I mean, that sounds um, really interesting, and it's and it sounds like a film that you know, as we've as we were discussing in uh, La Ultima Pellicula, it seems like a film that could probably be more easily digested now that there is this kind of. Um, you know, uh, th- there's kind of a subset of cinema now that kind of does stuff like that. As whereas to during that time, it was still pretty radical. You know? Well, it, it was it was in Hollywood, but it, it's not it's not any more radical than the stuff that like Jacques Rivette was doing at the same time. And and that's like the the influence of the French New Wave on the filmmakers of the New Hollywood, but not so much the studio executives of the New right. Hollywood. Right. So it's like. Uh, it's a weird disconnect between like the artists and the money men and for for a very brief time the money men didn't know what to do so they just gave money to anybody and they made these great movies that flopped with audiences that the studios didn't understand and just kind of buried and but now these are these are the best films of the 1970s to me right yeah I, well i i look forward to seeing that and and catching up to some of those other ones too um Last thing about Hopper as an actor, what what's your quintessential? What would be your your favorite Dennis Hopper? Not even necessarily performance on the whole, but like moment. Uh, when when I was in high school, I saw Apocalypse Now, which is what you do when you're in high school, and I <laughs> still don't know how you miss that. And I I recorded it off of HBO or something, and. And uh, Hopper has has basically two speeches in that film. Then they're they're kind of really long monologues, and he talks really fast, and he like flits from idea to idea. And I used to uh, rewind the tape and and rewatch his two speeches over and over again because he has just such a like an amazing cadence to it to his speech, and and just the, like the the kind of uh, drugged out and crazy way that he jumps from idea to idea is just fascinating to me and and so that's why i'm really bummed that you haven't seen apocalypse now when we're talking about (laughs) dennis hopper because that is my favorite dennis hopper performance and and uh seeing him in in the american dreamer he he talks exactly that same way when he's supposedly in a documentary so i I don't know if it's acting or if that's just you know the way dennis hopper's brain worked and it just (laughs) you know spat everything out in these in these beautifully formed sentences and but yeah, he's he's the best. What what is your favorite yeah. 
is it speed? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Super Mario Brothers. Uh, uh, when you know, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I for me, the first thing that comes to mind is True Romance. Um, the scene with him and uh, Christopher Walken, um, which is just a great, you know, Tarantino scene um, that's played beautifully by two, you know, really solid uh, actors who can just bring it, you know? And so to me that, you know, that's another movie that I want to revisit true romance. Cause it's been a list, but um, it's funny to me how much of that movie, and he's not in it a lot. I mean, he's, he's, he's not a main, you know, he's not Christian Slater or something in that movie, but uh, it's amazing how much of that movie sticks with you. Cause I've only seen it once, but I swear I can remember practically the entire movie, which is, which is saying something for me in my, addled brain it's it's a really great movie it's a tony scott and and quentin tarantino were were a great uh, kind of pair of director and writer it's uh you know i i i know why you know tarantino isn't letting other people direct his movies direct his Natural scripts killers. <laughs> yeah most mostly that but uh it, it would have been interesting to see if if they had had worked together more to see if they yeah, could I, have like a like a Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry, or or Spike Jones kind of of collaboration. Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, you know, I you know I love me some Tarantino, um, you know, as a director too. But yeah, it would be cool to see um, somebody else's take on his stuff. And you know, like something like Django Unchained, which to me is a little unwieldy. Um, if somebody else took on that material from him may have shaped it into something a little more uh, solid, possibly. But yeah, um, yeah that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, so from that, we'll move on to our Cinema Central this week. We're picking our, tying in with, obviously, the theme of the show, uh, movies about movies. So, um, you know, this is a, a topic that, you know, this is one of my favorite kinds of films, obviously being a, a movie nerd um, is seeing movies that are, you know, taking place, you know, in the studio system or, or, you know, showing someone making a film, a documentary of, of a making of a film and stuff. So there's a lot of great stuff to pick from here. Um, did you have a clear front runner or was this difficult for you to pick? Sean? Oh, I mean, there's, there's no way to pick just, just one, but uh <laughs> I'll pick like the to. yeah. I'll, I'll pick like the most recent movie about movies that I that I've seen and really loved, which is uh, this movie called Hell's a Poppin'. Which uh, I have wanted to see Hell's a Poppin' for years, years. It actually, uh, I was going to talk about this a, a bit in in connection with uh, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break because it it also came out in 1941. It's uh, it's 41 for Sucker, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's an adaptation of a kind of notorious stage show on 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 Broadway where the uh, the the two leads these uh, comedians Oli Olson and, and Chick Johnson basically preside over absolute chaos just meta joke after meta joke and uh, they they begin you know making a film of their stage play and then like the producers come in and say you know you can't do this we we need to follow a script there has to be like a, a young romance like you know the all like the 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 idiotic stuff that MGM would stick into Marx Brothers movies uh, that's what their their producer tells them and so they they bring on this writer who's uh, Elijah Cook Jr. 
and he's written the screenplay for them, and it's just this terrible screenplay. But but Olson and Johnson keep kind of eating it away at it at the edges, uh, in in the way that uh, the Marx Brothers would, but much more uh, cinematically than just kind of the verbal chaos the uh, the Marxists did. So it's like this this melding of of like duck soup with Buster Keaton, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And um, I saw I saw a clip. I've only seen a clip of a dance scene from Hell's a Poppin. Um, this like jitterbug sequence that it's been it's been maybe five six years since I saw it, and it blew my mind. I mean, it just blew my mind. And yeah, so I, actually, I, I actually played that sequence for my wife because it's it's like the, one of the most physically remarkable dance sequences in in studio era history. It's yeah. it is intense. Yeah. Uh, and how did you see it again? Because it's not easily seen. I rented it from Scarecrow Video. <laughs> right, but okay, but is it uh okay? I don't, I don't is know. It, but... I don't know that there's like an official DVD. They have a couple of copies of it. I'm not. I I assume that they are kind of gray market right. uh, videos. It it may be on YouTube. I'm not sure. Right. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I need to check that out. Well, my pick, you know, first thing I gravitated towards, and it's been because of La Ultima Pelicula, um, was Les Blank's uh, Burden of Dreams, which I mentioned briefly. Um, you know, The Making of Fitzcarraldo, which is a fantastic film, and I love it to death. But um, I started to think more, and like I said, I really like movies that kind of show, well, I mean, not that this that film doesn't do it, but, you know, the the joy of making films and uh and i i feel like that there are a few movies that kind of tap into that as well as tim burton's ed wood um which my favorite tim burton film um and one another film um from the early 90s that i would like to to revisit because it's been a long long time even though i've seen it several times but um there is so much fun in that movie. And it's one of Johnny Depp's, I think, greatest performances. And, um, you know, he's, he's devolved into this, I don't know, sticky thing where in this one, he's, he really, you know, he's, there's an exuberance to it and a playfulness and stuff that I feel is even lost in something like uh, pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. Um, and the supporting cast in Ed Wood, is just a rogues gallery. I mean, it's just great. You got Jeffrey Jones, you've got Bill Murray, Martin Landau, um, and I feel like we've talked about Ed Wood, so I don't want to go too um, into it. But uh, that movie really sums up how much fun movies are. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, absolutely, it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a very Tim Burtony thing to do to take you know somebody who's notorious for being a, a terrible director and hold him up as like a, a as like an idol as somebody to be admired because he you know he's an oddball but he you know he cares so much about movies and he wants so much that you 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 root for him and it's kind of the the Kim the the Tim Burton route for like the gothic outsider kind of thing that that Burton seems to have gotten away from in the last 15 years and I miss I miss the Tim Burton of the first decade of his career of up, up oh, through, yeah. up through mean, Mars attacks yeah um, um 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. Um, but we'll always have Edward. <laughs> uh, well, without further ado, um, let's get to a discussion of never give a sucker an even break. Yeah. And another thing, you're always squawking about something. If it isn't a steak, it's something else. I didn't squawk about the steak there. I merely said I didn't see that old horse that used to be tethered outside here. You're as funny as a cry for help. You also pull that old gag about breaking your fork in the gravy. I didn't say anything about breaking the fork in the gravy. Used to be an old Follies girl. You know, there's something awfully big about you. <laughs> thank you, dear, thank you, dear, thank you. Your nose. Something awfully big about you, too. Hiya, Tony. Hiya, Joe. Give me a cup of Jamo. Probably means mocha java. Uh, what's the amount of the insult? I'll be 35 cents. 35 cents, thank you. Have uh, you any imported cigars? Stingaroos, four for a nickel. Oh, that's fine, as long as they're imported. You know, if anybody ever comes in here and gives you a $10 tip, scrutinize uh, it carefully, because a lot of counterfeit money going around. I'll give you the dope, don't uh, care there. If I get any counterfeit nickels or pennies, I'll know where they came from. <laughs> You're so clever. Uh, who told you I was clever? Oh, all your friends at the studio told me. Oh, drat. I told them not to tell And you. another thing. Don't be so free with your hands. Listen, honey. I was only trying to guess your weight. You take things too seriously. Baloney, Mahoney, Malarkey, you big kabluna. Kabluna? I've had them called that for two days. Okay, that was a clip from Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, um, directed by Edward F. Klein uh, from 1941. And it's the last film that starred W.C. Fields, um, who was uh, nearing the end of his career. He, he started out in vaudeville and he was a juggler. Um, and then he, he broke into cinema. Um, and it's kind of interesting to think of it now. You know, his first few roles in, in film were in the silent era, which is so funny because his persona now is, is known as this kind of snide character that made all these, you know, um, one-liners and, and what have you. Um, and to think of him being in film prior to the invention of sound uh, is kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, so this this film is a, is, um, it's a very meta movie, especially for 1941. Um, the plot as such is W.C. Fields plays W.C. Fields, uh, an actor and performer who um, is trying to convince a studio to produce a screenplay that he has written and he has a meeting with a producer and uh, the middle part of the movie is, it takes place in this producer's office um, where he's reading the script and then it will show for lengthy periods of time, the script played out where Fields character will go and it's just in, and it's one ridiculous thing after another. It doesn't make any sense. He's, 
Um, he's on an airplane with his niece and he jumps out of a window. He's on an observation deck on an airplane and he jumps out of a window to get his whiskey that dropped. And he lands in this, you know, tower, this Rapunzel-like tower where there's, you know, um, a, a mother and daughter who haven't seen um, a man in, you know, 20 years and he woos them. And anyway, it's just a string of just ridiculous scenes and and situations um tied together and uh it all climaxes in once again randomly this huge car chase at the end and then the basically and this doesn't spoil anything the, there's a car chase and then the movie's over <laughs> this thing is 71 minutes long um and it's it's such a weird it's a really weird movie um <laughs> did, <laughs> Let me ask you this, Sean. Which film do you think is weirder? Never Give a Sucker an Even Break or La Ultima Pelicula? Uh, I think I think that I think this is weirder. <laughs> me I th- too. I think there's there's less of, of substance to it, for sure. Like I I think Absolutely. I think this is more just a, a celebration of the bizarre for its own sake. It's just it's it's film as as a, a medium where where any literally anything is possible, and th- there's something really really magical about that. And the the idea of having at the center of this really kind of utopian magical vision of the cinema this fat old drunken curmudgeon is just a, a stroke of genius because he's he's such an odd character. He's not like a, a manic pixie dream girl, like, uh, like Gael Garcia Bernal in like a Michelle Gondry movie where his like imagination runs wild and you know, his dreams are reality. He's, he's just an old drunk with a giant, you know, gin blossom nose. And, and yet, you know, he, he goes through everything. So, so underplaying and so just kind of muttering his, his little asides that it, it makes it seem like this craziness is just an everyday thing for him. Oh, clearly, yeah. Absolutely. Like he's he's written this screenplay that is that is completely absurd, but you can kind of see in in like the the earlier scenes where you actually see what his daily life is like, you kind of get the idea that that he doesn't think that his screenplay is all that unrealistic. Oh no. Yeah, he's he's he he thinks that this is what movies are is is you know just throwing these stringing these random things together and you know then you got a story and it, you film it and it's there you know um, and it's it's really interesting to um, to see uh, particularly in the beginning you know it, it the first shot we see of W C Fields is him looking kind of wistfully at uh, a billboard for The Bank Dick, which is his most famous film uh, to this day. Um, and it's clearly um, showing his character as as kind of beaten down and, you know, um, past his prime and, uh, you know, kind of looking back on his glory days or whatever. And I, f- I felt like that moment was surprisingly honest and uh i don't know just kind of yeah the well the bank dick was the the film he had made the year before and and he he appears to be very proud of it and uh then like everyone else who who looks at the billboard talks about how much it stinks 
Right. <laughs> but it's, but it's, yeah. Um, but, the, and that whole scene plays out and he just keeps getting beaten down by the people that, you know, he runs into, um, he gets knocked into a bush and, you know, all, you know, all these things, these, these horrible things happen to him. Yeah. Little, little kids make fun of him. Like, uh, he goes to a, a diner and tries to eat and the, the waitress is really mean to him. And then he tries to steal a hat. <laughs> um so how familiar how familiar are you with uh wc fields's work uh not not that familiar i i saw the bank dick a while ago and and it's a gift also uh from from 1934 uh i liked quite a bit uh my little chickadee which was the other movie he made in 1940 with may west i did not care for all that much Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I haven't seen, uh, that or the bank dick in, in, in quite a while. So this is, this is, I guess the fourth WC Fields film that I've seen. And I, I really, I don't know what to make of it. It's just so, it's not, the other ones are not as experimental as this. Uh, the bank dick kind of goes into a very weird place in in the end, also with a car chase, as I remember. But but it's a gift is is much more uh, kind of a straightforward narrative where he's moving his family uh, west because he's like misread an advertisement or something, and it, it's it's a much more kind of typical. Uh, Hollywood comedy construction where there will be kind of set pieces that will escalate and there'll be either wordplay or, or physical comedy and and they'll just kind of build and, and it, it gives like show pieces for, for great supporting actors and, and stuff like that. There's no like wild shifts of, of reality right. as there is in Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. It doesn't have Margaret Dumont uh, with a, a dog with fangs. Um, <laughs> trying to trying to mack on WC Fields. <laughs> yeah, living on a, a giant nest on on top of a hill. <laughs> I love uh, I love that when he like gets to the village, like he he uh, is going he like uh, runs away from Margaret Dumont because he she like tries to kiss him, and he like jumps on down down the cliff and and goes all the way down to this little village, and he says. You know, he goes to like the first bar that he, that he finds and and tells the story of how there's these these two women up on this this tall mountain, and and the men there are like, well, what do they look like? And he says like the the one woman is is young and pretty and has never seen a man before, so immediately every man in the bar is is going to race to the top of the mountain. <laughs> well, I love that he, and and also I love that he. He runs away from Margaret Dumont, and then he finds out that she's rich. And so he, like, immediately turns around, puts on a tuxedo, like, goes all the way back up to this mountain, like, you know, gets in a basket, pulls himself all the way up there. Um, he's just so, you know, <laughs> he's so transparent in his uh, predilections, as it were. Um the Going back to what you were saying about it's a gift, um, and I, I feel like this movie is at its weakest um, when it is giving its screen time over to its supporting cast. Like there's a section um, where there's a, a musical scene where it's a, it's a, it's on a film set and Gloria Jean, who plays his niece um, is tasked with learning some songs for a film she's supposed to be in. And uh, it, it just kind of, 
sucks all the energy out of the film for a bit. Um, you know, everybody, but but but, in, but intentionally so because like she wants to sing a certain song, and then the the producer uh, uh, played by Franklin Pangborn says, "No, no, you're going to play this song," and she like rolls her eyes because it's like this this really. Uh, kind of obnoxious like classical operatic tune and she sings it and is like you know totally not committed to the performance and and he loves it but it's well, terrible. Yeah, yeah. i understand that but when it's a 71 minute long film it, it does take up a lot of that time yeah it does take up like a good like tenth of the of the picture and so whenever wc fields is not on screen i feel that the movie suffers a little bit luckily He's on screen for most of this thing, and and um, it's to to its credit. Um, and to me, this movie was was pretty solid. Um, and I, I I feel a lot like about this as I did with um, the May West film that we watched for the mm-hmm. for the show. Um, what the hell did we watch? <laughs> uh, I'm no angel. I'm no angel. That's right. Um, where, you know, it's, you know, I enjoy his personality and I enjoy her personality and the movie's kind of going along doing its thing. And, I'm, you know, I'm digging it. But then for me, this movie really brings it home and goes over the top with that car chase at the end, which is absolutely amazing. Like it, it's, it's. It comes out of nowhere, first of all. He just randomly, he a, a woman gets in a car and he thinks she's pregnant and she needs to go to the hospital. And so he starts just driving like, you know, the devil through the city streets. Um, and it escalates, you know, he gets, you know, trapped with a fire truck and all these all these things. And that section of this movie, I, I think it's one of the best car chases in cinema history. I really do. Like, it's, it's so well done. It is so over the top. And um, I love that it just, he crashes the car at the end of it, and then the movie's over. Yep. <laughs> like, he's like, there's, like, nowhere else to go with this. It's like, I just made this awesome scene. Okay, that's it. That's the end. Well, you, you, you kind of feel that this is just, like, a typical day for him. Like, like all of the things that, the, the movie takes place over, over one day, doesn't it? Like, we see him in the morning, yeah. he has the script conference, and then he gets in the car. And that, yeah, and that, it. and that's just his day. And and you feel like this is just normal for him because you know partly because of the way Fields underplays everything. Like he's never shocked by anything that goes on around him. So I I feel like you know it it stops right there, but it, it could have gone on infinitely. Like there could just be more and more and more and more and right. more. Right, he just keeps getting himself it into just, yeah. you know sure. just keeps getting weird. There's nothing that that is not possible in in this world. And I think that I think that's great. Like the the ending is as arbitrary as anything else in the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. <laughs> that's that's that perfectly sums it up. Um, yeah, and this was it was directed by by uh, Eddie Klein, who is most famous for his collaborations with Buster Keaton in the in the early twenties. Uh, did you see much of a? Uh, an Eddie Klein influence here, or is this is this all W.C. Fields? I would say that car chase. Yeah, um, I would definitely say the car chase, um, which has a real kinetic kind of Keaton esque um, vibe to it, which uh, is really exhilarating and, and kind of. I think the reason it's so shocking is that W.C. Fields, even though he 
um, you get these these moments and, and they're very subtle where he kind of shows his talent, uh, his physical talent, mm-hmm. um, you know, where he, he like kicks three, um, three golf balls um, into a hole, like from across a room. And, and he does it so nonchalantly that it's just awesome. But anyway, but he's not a, a very physical, like, you know, uh, comedian throughout the film, but then yeah. there's this, you know, yeah. scene at the end. Yeah, he he's old and 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 fat. Not like like Keaton and Chaplin were, you know, very uh, very fit, very athletic performers. So it was no real surprise when they would do, you know, some some crazy stunt or something. But but Fields shows this kind of balletic grace, which is very surprising given his frame. Well, if you've ever yeah, there's a short that I saw or a clip of him from when, from when he was younger, you know, 20, 30 years before this, um, where he's juggling cigar boxes and the dude was talented. Like, I mean, he, that's how he originally made his start was as a juggler and he was, you know, unprecedented. Um, and, uh, so yeah, he's got these physical talents that kind of, you know, as he, I think, um, moved into the sound era. And I think, you know, when his drinking got in the way, he kind of moved more towards this kind of verbal thing, which he's absolutely great with too. So don't get me wrong. But, um, but yeah, I think Eddie Klein, um, was really great in terms of, of, of bringing that final car chase to, um, you know, fruition as it were. There are other great things about this film. Uh, there's a scene where he, where WC Fields goes into a, a soda fountain and, uh, he, he orders a drink and he, he turns to the camera and he says, um, this was originally going to be in a saloon, but the censors cut it or, you know, made us cut it or whatever. And that is so awesome. Like for, for him to just like say that directly to the camera, like break, like it's not in the middle of his, uh, fake movie. It's not, it's just him talking to the people, breaking the fourth wall and just giving it, you know, letting it out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about this movie. <laughs> I don't either. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really short movie. It's a really weird movie. It's, it's hilarious, and it's a lot of fun. And I don't, I, I don't know enough about W.C. Fields. Like, I, I feel that he's one of those, those performers that I've just, just only scratched the surface. And, and someday I need to, you know, get around to watching all of his movies. Yeah, I really want to see. Uh, he's in Sally of the Sawdust, which is directed by D.W. Griffith. Um, that I really want. It's from nineteen. I can't even remember the date, but it's early. It's nineteen twenty-five. It's it's actually on the uh, the all the the various instant services. Like I think it's on Netflix. It's probably on Amazon also. Yeah. So it's out there. I I I also haven't seen it. Yeah. But uh, there's, a, there's a couple of, of W.C. Fields DVD sets that look really nice that I've, I've always like uh, meant to, to get that I never have. Yeah, the two-volume uh, comedy collection. Yeah, they're pretty yeah. handsome looking. Well, that's our discussion, if that's what you can call it, of Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. Uh, we're going to listen to a little more Yola Tango here. Uh, enjoy.
That was Yola Tango with Straight Down to the Bitter End, and we have come to the bitter end of our show. Uh, next week, well, we won't be doing a show, but in two weeks, we'll be back with uh, reviews of Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, which is uh, started playing a couple of weeks ago, I think, around the country, but we're holding off on it because we wanted to talk about Lultima Plicula this week before it plays at the Film Forum. And along with that, we're going to watch John Carpenter's Starman, which came out in 1984. And I don't know if we've really talked about this yet on the show, but we're we're trying to uh, to watch a bunch of 1984 movies for this year. And then at our big end of the year episode, like we did with 1933 last year, we're going to do 1984, where we talk about the top movies of the year and give out fake awards and stuff. So Starman hey, will be a 1984. Starman will be a, a 1984 possibility there. If you are in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, you should go check out uh, this thing that looks uh, really cool on Tuesday, April 29th. It's uh, called Dancing in the Dark, Michael Vandebos on the movie's greatest dance numbers. And what it looks like is basically 80 minutes of dance numbers all cut together from Hollywood movies. They got Busby Berkeley, Vincent Minnelli, Stan McDonan, Bob Fosse, Baz Luhrmann. Uh, hey. Yeah, it looks great. Uh, let's see some of the movies. Uh, Top Hat, Singing in the Rain, The Bandwagon, Kiss Me Kate, Damn Yankees, West Side Story, All That Jazz, Pennies from Heaven, your favorite movie. <gasps> yeah. Plus, uh, plus it's got some Bollywood too. So that look, that looks really cool. I love, I love musicals. I love dance and musicals, and that looks like a, a neat thing to go and see. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, there is, if you're in Palo Alto, California, or you know, in the Bay Area, or anywhere near there, um, the Stanford Theater, um, and this has been going on actually for. Gosh, almost a full month, a full month now, um, but it's still going to go into uh, mid-May. They are doing a huge Barbara Stanwyck uh, retrospective where they're doing double features. Um, they're kind of doing, you know, two days of two movies and three days of two movies and so on and so forth. And they've already run, you know, some of the big ones, Lady Eve, um, you know, Babyface, um, a lot of great stuff. But um, coming up in the coming weeks, they're going to be showing um, some more great stuff. I mean, because Barbara Stanwyck is just amazing. Uh, but the one I'm really excited about and I would encourage you to see is one I just recently saw um, during Western Month. Uh, May 9th through 11th, they're going to be running um, The Violent Men, which I have not seen, um, and pairing it with 40 Guns from uh, director Samuel Fuller, which is a 
freaking brutal. <laughs> that movie's brutal. Uh, I'll tell you that much. But the series runs uh, at the Stanford Theater Wednesdays through Sundays um, every week until May 18th. So check it out because Barbara Stanwyck is a treasure. Barbara Stanwyck is the greatest actress in the history of motion pictures. I will not argue that. She's awesome. And so, I, uh, I, I continue to maintain that James Stewart is the greatest actor in the history of motion pictures. And uh, I actually saw something from him that I'd never seen before. I've, I've been watching this uh, Eleanor Powell musical from 1936, and James Stewart sings and dances and is actually not bad. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Jimmy, hey. St Jimmy Stewart in a musical holding his own with Eleanor Powell. <laughs> it happened. It wow. happened. Greatest actor cool. in film history. That's great. Did he ever make a movie with Barbara Stanwyck? That would just like blow your mind, wouldn't it? Um, I'm going to say yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, no. And I just closed the IMDb. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. I, I believe you. I mean, it, it would be shocking if they didn't. I just can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, you can find us online at the George Sanders show dot blogspot.com we're also on twitter at geo sanders show um and we also accept email at the george sanders show at gmail.com uh i've got nothing else to say what about you sean i'm looking up james stewart movies to see if barbara stanwick was <laughs> in any of them <laughs> all right i'm gonna spend all night doing this now i'm sure you will text yeah. me you know when you find out uh well thanks for listening uh we, we appreciate it and uh we'll be back here in two weeks time yeah. wherever here is this is like the, the the internet ether i don't know exactly where here is but it'll happen somewhere how, how the west was one maybe was barbara stanwick in that oh that's a good one. everyone right? was in that everybody was in that movie yeah, yeah. and everybody directed that movie too no um, no, no no barbara stanwick though oh yeah Weird. Mm. It's like the uh, the the Kane Hackman theory. What's the Kane Hackman theory? Uh, that uh, no matter what time of day it is, you can find a movie with either Gene Hackman or Michael Caine in it playing on TV. <laughs> oh, it's from, I don't have uh, access to regular TV, so maybe that's yeah. why I haven't heard of that. It's from uh, the movie PCU. Oh, I haven't seen PCU. There you go. Yeah, you, you maybe should. we should watch PCU instead of Apocalypse Now. We should. We should watch. <laughs> we should watch them both. That would be a great double feature. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, here's George. Yeah. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings 
Oh. Uh-huh. 